0: Pop quiz, the book of Jude, is it in the Old Testament or New Testament? Uh, Is it near the beginning of the New Testament or near the end? Hey, you've done pretty good, but I'll bet you haven't read it for a while. Turn to the little book of Jude, next to last book in your New Testament. As Pastor Brandon said, we start another mini-series today. This will be my final one. And we're going to go through this little book of Jude, five messages. Um, Pastor Kyle will be preaching in a couple weeks, continuing his waiting series, and then preaching on our Christmas service on December 19th, and then I will wrap up on the 26th. It'll be my final sermon, Um, just a bit of a personal testimony story about my journey with COVID which continues but for these five Sundays we're going to spend in Jude the title of this mini-series is Wolf Proof Your Church and Life Wolf Proof Your Church and Life the writer of this little book is Jesus half-brother they had the same mother but not the same father and apparently Jude was going to write this book about good things. Um, the encouraging things of the gospel. But apparently word got to him about some concerning thing, things in the churches that he's writing to. He's worried about the church. And he is seeing in the church the kind of seduction within the church that Paul predicted back in Acts 20. If you want to read these verses uh, with me, Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul had, it was uh, not that long before he got arrested and was sent to Rome to stand trial. And he knew that his time was growing short on planet Earth. And so he met with these men that he loved deeply and he prayed with them, and they spent a little time together, and then he warned them. And, you know, as I come to the end of my um, preaching ministry, uh, I've, I've been a, a watcher of the bigger church for decades now. I came out of a church movement where I saw a departure of um, trust in the Bible as God's word. Um, I watched as some other things began to um, drift off in the churches that I was part of. And now in these last 30 years, I've watched in the evangelical movement as, as things kind of to the left and to the right fall away and say, well, this, is, this was true Two years ago, but we no longer believe it's true. This mattered five years ago. It no longer matters. And I wanted to share some things with you as I kind of say my goodbyes. Kind of along the lines of what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. In verse 29, uh, verse 28, he warned them to guard themselves and God's people and to feed the flock. And then in verse 29, he said, I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Of course, talking about the church as the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Now, as Pastor Charlie and I were saying to the elder teams we met Thursday night, We um, step down at the end of the year and go to part-time ministry here and um, a lot of what we've been doing will change. But as we look at those who are taking our places and uh, the elder team that God has uh, put together here, we leave with great confidence um, that you are in very, very good hands. Uh, We look at the senior leadership team and obviously we don't know Joel well yet. Um, Ben is new here, but we have great confidence in the future of this church. But the fact of the matter is that we have an enemy. Every church does. And this enemy has his sights settled on every church. He's got them in his crosshairs. And he will not rest without trying to take down churches, every church. I don't care whether we're talking about American churches or Sudanese churches or Chinese churches. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Satan hates God but his primary way of fighting against God is to fight against God's people. And so, it would be naive to think that 20 years from now, this church will automatically look the same as it does today. It will automatically be as healthy as it is today. There is this enemy on the prowl, and we ignore him uh, to our great loss. And so these five weeks, I I want to talk to you about being part of guarding the church, wolf-proofing it, as it were. And really, the only way that you can be part of doing that is if you are wolf-proofing yourself. And what I mean by that is today, the the average Christian is, is living a very, very different life from the average Christian a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, uh, in America anyway, and this would be true in other countries as well, in the United States a hundred years ago, you primarily were spiritually fed through your local pastor, preached every Sunday. You might have itinerants come through every now and then. But today, that's different. My guess is that if I asked you to raise your hands, how many of you have listened to another pastor this week or read uh, a, another Christian book by another Christian author other than your pastor um, or read a blog or listened to a podcast this week that most of you would raise your hands. And, and so you are, being, uh, you are being exposed to many, 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 many more influences than the average American Christian was 100 years ago or the average Christian anywhere was 100 years ago. Through the wonders of the Internet, you have access to all kinds of influencers. And not just speakers and teachers, but also musicians. And to be honest, some of my greatest concerns about influence is music, because you listen to a podcast or you listen to a sermon once, but music, you know, if you like a song, I pulled up a song this morning about seven fifteen or so, that was running through my head. Just I just love the music. I love the words. I pulled it up on YouTube and listened to it yet again. I've probably listened to it fifty times already over the last six months. And and so the word and, and the power of music is to drive home what the music says into our souls in a way that just listening to something read or spoken doesn't. And so there's there's a wolf proofing that has to take place in each one of our lives first so that we can contribute to making sure that our churches are wolf proofed as well. And so the title of this first message, excuse me, deals with the heart and soul of what needs to be guarded in the local church and that is to save the gospel that saves. What is the nature of the gospel of the church? And I can tell you that if uh, of the hundreds of thousands of churches in the United States today, that it, if you went into 10 different churches, it's quite possible that you would hear 10 different messages when it comes to the gospel. And yet the Bible is, speaks of one gospel. I remember a conversation I was having with a relative one day and uh, was talking about the gospel and he said, yeah, but which gospel are you talking about? And my eyebrows kind of went up and he goes, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, are you talking about Jesus' gospel or Paul's gospel? And this is the kind of thing that floats around out there in the church ether. And so today we're going to talk about this good news that has saved many of us and preserving it. And so let's pray and ask God for his help and then we'll dive in look at a couple of these verses. Father, we know that you love the church. In fact, ultimately, at the end of the day, when all the accounting is done, it will have been the church that's the only thing that Jesus died for. He died to make available salvation for all, but in the end, it will be the church that has claimed the benefits of it, his death. We know that you love the church because you have established the church as Christ's bride. And I love the church. And it has been such a delight for 30 years to be a shepherd in the church. Such a privilege to get to know so many wonderful people in your church. Such a privilege to see the work of the Holy Spirit in so many lives. People coming to faith in Christ, people growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, people turning from sin, people um, having relationships restored, sometimes among family members, sometimes among spouses, sometimes among estranged friends, sometimes between enemies it's been such a privilege to see you work we haven't talked an awful lot over those years about this slithering enemy that is in the shadows all the time and yet we know that he does his work has done his work and will continue to do his work because he is determined to undermine yours And it is not possible in any local church for one person or even a dozen people to stand against him alone and really guard the church, so to speak. It is an effort on the part of the whole church. And so I commend this body to you for the decades to come that they would not simply know Christ but that they would stand for him and with him against the onslaught of deception that we sometimes see in some churches, against the onslaught of the enemy who's behind the deceptions, that as a church we would stand for righteousness, that we would be bold, that we would be tender, Loving, but firm. And that we would be able to spot and recognize those deviations from the Word of God. That we would be men and women, and yes, children as well. Who spend the time necessary to become familiar with all that you have said in this precious book that you have left us to be able to, in our minds, discern between the claims to truth that we are being fed by the culture and the real and honest-to-goodness truth that you have spoken to us in your word. And so this morning, we pray that you would speak to us by your word and by your spirit so that we might participate in saving the gospel that saves, in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude, this one little chapter, we're going to just look at two verses this morning. Verse 3 and 4. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I have a single point this morning, and it is this. We, meaning the people of God, we must all fight for the gospel. We must all fight for the gospel. And I have four questions to ask under this What's the command? Who's to do the fighting? Who's the opposition? And what's at stake? What's the command? Now, it sounds a little uh, militant, I suppose, to say we must all fight for the gospel. That doesn't sound like something that Christians should be doing, right? In the fight. And Jude here says that we should defend the faith. I, I would prefer if he would have used the word contend. That's what most of your more literal translations say, and that's not a word that we use much, 21st century, so I understand the the choice to speak about defense. The problem is, to defend means to stand here passively and I will get, I'll start fighting if something comes up to me. So imagine an ancient city, a scout has brought word in that there's an army approaching them that apparently is going to uh, declare war on them. If you're going to defend the city, you're going to put archers up in the parapets of the wall and you're going to ring the city with your elite troops so that you can defend the city. But if the scout sends word that the army that's approaching has disbanded and is going home, nothing further needs to be done. The word contend speaks about a battle, speaks about a fight that must take place among those you're with. In other words, it's not just a defensive force, but it's a defensive slash offensive. Now, let me make a footnote about that. Sometimes when we talk about apologetics, and those are the conversations that we have about um, the truths that we have in the scriptures, and apologetics is is to how to answer questions that unbelievers have about the gospel um, often we talk about defending the faith but this text and this is the text where that phrase come from, comes from this text does not speak about defending the faith against unbelievers we don't defend the faith against unbelievers we proclaim the faith to unbelievers that's our job And and brothers and sisters, when I read some of the stuff on social media that's put out there by Christians targeting unbelievers, that's ungodly. It's ungodly. We're screaming and yelling at them verbally when we're supposed to come to them with the love of Jesus Christ and proclaim the gospel to them and it should be sweet to them. We don't need to defend anything against whatever. That defense is taking place among professing believers. Defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all to his holy f- people. What's the command? To defend or contend for the faith. Who's to do this fighting? Now verse 3. It says, I'm urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted. That you is plural. Now, that means at least this. Okay, he's not just speaking to pastors of local churches. Not just their job. Say, well, maybe he's speaking to the leaders in the church. The elder team in the church. Well, the problem with that is he finishes that verse up, that sentence up. God has entrusted this once for all time to his holy people. It doesn't say to the leaders of the church. He's entrusted the defense of this faith to all the people in the church. All believers. And I want you to know and uh, be reminded of this this morning that you... I don't care what your role is in the church. I don't care what you do or don't do in the church. That you are not customers. You are shareholders. You're not a consumer. You're a shareholder. Now, some of you are going to go out to eat uh, some night this week. You're going to go through the doors of the restaurant. You're going to just sit down in a table and... Apart from eating a meal later on, that will be the extent of your involvement in what takes place. So the waiter or waitress is going to come to your table, going to take your order. They're going to go back to the kitchen. Somebody else is going to prepare your meal for you. The waiter is going to bring it back to you, set it in front of you. You're going to consume it and then you're going to leave. You don't have any other stake in that entire operation. You don't own the business. You didn't buy the food that you're eating. You didn't hire the cook. You didn't hire the wait staff. You didn't prepare the food. You didn't do any of that. You're nothing but a consumer or customer. You're not a shareholder. And to be honest, in the American church, this is written about all the time by people who write about the state of the church in the United States. Consistently write about that the American Christians so many times see themselves as nothing more as, than consumers or customers. And I wonder, for example, if the preaching really tanked here for six weeks. Let, let's say I intentionally just stank. I mean, I stink all by myself, but let's say I did it on purpose. For six weeks, I just preached as badly as I could think to preach. How many of you would send an email, call an elder, get on the phone, versus how many of you would start visiting other churches? And I'm not speaking now about a loyalty to Keystone. I'm speaking about an intentional commitment to any local church. As long as the preaching's okay, as long as the music's okay, as long as the kids' ministry's okay, I'm there. But as soon as it starts to peter out, I'm starting to move on, look around, here, there, and elsewhere. Now the reason this matters is because, let's take a church that has abandoned, we'll touch on this a little later, but let's take take a church that is abandoning the authority of the Word of God. And you say, rather than try to mix it up with the church leaders and say, what is going on here? Rather than sending an email, rather than getting on the phone, we're we're out. Here's what happens. If you're out, the only people that will ultimately be left are those who agree to that. Now we have yet one more church that's in the dumpster. If, if you want to see a transforming church, not just a transformed church, but one that impacts the community and the world, then we have to start thinking differently about the church and our involvement in it. Is it my church or is it the church that I just go to right now? interesting over the years we we've, we've had some people who've actually kind of prided themselves in the record that they held <laughs> they were here they were using their gifts and they were coming to the church for like 15 years before they became members of the church now I always say you know if you can't figure out inside of two years whether or not this is the church for you I'm probably I don't know that 10's going to do it you should be able to figure it out and in a couple of years, but certainly by, by four years. And, and we look at the, this is a, again, a problem across American churches. Membership is way down. Why? Because I think it's easier not to make that step of commitment, and then it's easier for me to step out. And that is not, brothers and sisters, that's not the kind of church that the Bible portrays. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, read those chapters. I I, I mean, it's like we all need each other. We often teach that about spiritual gifts. I need your gift, you need my gift, and that's true. But it's a wonderful portrayal that we are not complete without each other. And I think that means without each other fully invested in the body and each other. Who's to do the fighting? The pastors? Yep. The elders? Yep. Other ministry team leaders? Yep. You? Yes. Now here's the key. I would love to go from person to person to person to person to person here this morning and ask you this question. Since last Sunday, have you opened your Bible? Say, well, why does that matter? Because you can't be in the fight if that's not typical. You just can't. How do you know what's going on in your church? How do you know whether they're, they're s- straying from the, the sound gospel or not? How do you know whether what's being taught from your pulpit is true or not unless you are drinking regularly at this glorious fountain? I've I've had countless people tell me over the years, I can't understand the Bible. I'm like, well, do you read it regularly? Well, no, I really don't because I can't understand it. I'm like, that's part of the problem. You, You can't start to understand it until you read it regularly. You can't sip at this fountain, you need to drink at this fountain. I don't care if it's six verses a day; it's that's six verses more than a lot of American Christians read. If you're going to be in the fight that is going to preserve the church, you're going to need to be up to speed on what God has said. Listen, any of you here who are drinking regularly at this fountain No, this is true there are some hard things in here and people's people say to me uh what about this and i'm like i know do, do you understand that Last week, I was reading through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and, and I'm on my knees most of the time that I'm reading and say, God, I don't, I don't understand this. How could you sanction this? How could, how could you call for this? There are things in here I don't, I don't understand. And if you sip at it, the first time someone asks you a question about that, you're going to go, you, you know, you're right. And they're going to end up winning you instead of you winning them. I, 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 I want to call for all of us to be prepared to fight this good fight for the gospel. What's the command? Contend for the faith. Who's to do the fighting? All of us. Who's the opposition? Well, for Jude here, the opposition In these churches, are people he describes as ungodly people. These are the same folks that Paul called in Acts 20 wolves. Now, Jesus and his disciples and the Israelites of his day were, uh, even when they, even the, the homes where the people weren't shepherds primarily, almost everybody had a flock, they had sheep. We know this because we know the Jewish people were always going down to the temple with sheep and goats and bulls for their sacrifices. So everybody knew about sheep. And Jesus talking about sheep and the dangers to sheep in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, this is what he says. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. Now apparently the wolf was the greatest threat to the sheep. We know that King David killed bears that attacked his father's flock. We know he killed lions that attacked his father's flock, but keep coming back to wolves. It might surprise you to know that even today there are wolves in Palestine, a particular variety. About 400 years before Christ came on the scene, the Aesop fables were written, and one of the little stories in that collection, tells about a wolf who typically ate sheep, but the flock that was near him, over a period of time, the shepherd was especially vigilant, and this wolf was getting skinnier and skinnier. And so one day, he spotted a sheepskin lying on the ground that had not been claimed, and he put it on him, and all of a sudden, he can make his way into the flock. And none of them knew the difference. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in the church, what Jude is talking about in the church. He says, Jude says this, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. In other words, they've slipped in unawares. They made it through the filter of the elder team. We just had 16 interviews the other week for people applying for membership. And our job is to guard the gate. We're the shepherd. To guard the gate, not to see that that only smart Christians get in, not to see that they are doctrinally precise or mature. Our goal is to make sure they know Christ. That's it. And apparently... These guys slipped in under the radar. They'd infiltrated local church members. And they were now distorting grace. They say that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. They're saying that one of the features of grace is that we can go ahead and And sin, we now have a pass to sin willy-nilly, and uh, that's okay, thanks to grace. Now, this is a charge that people leveled against biblical teaching way, way back in the early church. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. In other words, the law of the Israelites, they they read this and said, oh, wow, I'm a really horrible person. And that's what they were supposed to see, 613 laws, good luck in keeping them all. They were supposed to see how sinful they were so that they could welcome the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with, with gratitude and delight. But as people sinned, more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See that? Grace gives us right standing with God. Not performance, not obeying the laws perfectly. Resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul knew that this would set him up for attack. And so he says this, in the very next verse, chapter 6, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? You see, the grace that saves is also the grace that empowers us now to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And Jude says, you've got some of these Guys in your church who are saying, no, grace means you can just go, you can do whatever you want. I remember a conversation I had with a woman years ago, and there was some bad things going on in her life. She was making some horrible choices, and I talked to her about that. She goes, oh, Pastor Keith, she said, you don't understand. That's all under the blood. I'm like, wait, what? She's technically right. She's half right. The, the idea that my sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood of Jesus Christ, that's true. But the person who has been bought by the blood of Christ, the grace of Christ is operative in our life, does not say, and I can sin with impunity. Why? Because the Holy Spirit that came into our life when grace came, is there going, that's not right, sister. Poking. And prodding so that there's not peace over the sin. That might, she might sin for a while, but to barefacedly say, oh, I can do this. It's okay because it's under the blood. This is exactly what these guys were telling people in the church. To me, grace is probably the most stunning aspect of the gospel because grace was of infinite cost to the one who offers it, yet of no cost to those of us who accept it. I mean, just think about that. So God sent his one and only son and he had him butchered. I, there's just no other way to put it. And then he offers us that sacrifice in our place for our sin and says, here you go, no charge. This is a reason I can rarely get through some of these songs that we sang about Christ and the cross. I was at a concert Friday night and they started singing a song about the cross and I'm just soon in a bucket of tears. I'm like, he did that for me. He did that for me. Paid it all. I was no catch. A distortion of grace. I need to get busy here, but before I leave this, I want to touch on another common problem in American churches and really in churches all over the world because there's an instinct within us that says, I know I can please God. By putting my best foot forward. And that's not so much a distortion of grace as, as it is a deletion of grace, deleting grace. And this is not only uh, thought in many churches, this is actually taught in many churches. That God chooses to keep to save you and to keep you based on your performance. How well you do it. Some people call it legalism. I think legalism is such a vague term. I'm, uh, I prefer to stick with works righteousness. And there are countless churches that teach by your performance, you are either in trouble or you are okay. Paul says this in Romans chapter four, verse three. Now he's talking about an Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his performance? Faith. Faith. God counted him as righteous because of his faith. All right, last, lastly, what's at stake? What's at stake? Final verse here in Jude one four the condemnation of such people these wolves, the condemnation or the damnation we could say because that's what he means of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter two. Verse 12 says this, if we endure hardship, we will reign with him, with Jesus. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we deny Jesus, he will deny us. In other words, not, not just I've stopped believing in him, but I, I stopped trusting in him. I stop trusting in him or I undermine his work. He goes on here to say, verse 13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. In other words, when we mess up, which we all do. When we are unfaithful, he he will still be faithful to us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is, meaning he died for us. So he's not going to undie for us. And so what Jude is saying about these people is that they're, they're false Christians. They're fake Christians, and their judgment awaits them. What's at stake? The very gospel that we proclaim. The very gospel that we proclaim. And before I wrap up, I know I'm over time, but I want to share today, my thoughts about today and tomorrow's most likely gospel fights. And I don't have time to elaborate why all these are connected to the gospel, but they really are. The first one is the nature of humanity. The nature of humanity. This has to do th- with things like homosexuality and the transgender movement. I had a brother who was talking to me about his, his church. He said, we have a pastor who is teaching that homosexual relationships are just like heterosexual relationships, and they can be holy, uh, blessed by God. And he's like, I don't want to be a church shopper. I said, brother, there are some things that you, you should know already. He was old enough to know this. You should know already that this, this package of truths are non-negotiable I must be in a church that teaches these things and I said that's one of them because that is that that's part of the gospel if you go back to the pre- precursor of the gospel it is the sacrifices of animals right so they God was preparing all of Israel to to greet and welcome the Lord Jesus Christ as a as the final sacrifice for our sins And do you know what he prescribed most times for most of those sacrifices? They were to bring a goat or a bull or a sheep. And most cases they had to be a male or female. Male. Male. And so just as God is now increasingly becoming female to people, I'm waiting for the day where some people say, you know, Jesus was really a transgendered woman or the reverse of that. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image. And so he created man, male and female. He created them very distinct. This ultimately, if you trace it through, this ultimately has a gospel implication. The nature of humanity, it's a current fight and it's going to be one in the future. The uniqueness of Christ, increasingly we're seeing in churches that would have said uh, five years ago they're evangelical declaring that Jesus is one of many ways to be reconciled to God. I played a clip at the perspectives class I taught at LBC uh, back in September of a pastor in Harlem, 10,000 people in his church proclaiming. He said, this idea that you can only be made right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ is an insane idea. And you know what happened in that congregation of 10,000 You see why I say it's important that you are in the fight? There should have been some people in that church that stood up and rebuked that pastor or walked out. The promise of eternal judgment. Increasingly, Christians of all stripes are saying, you know what, I'm not sure we've gotten this idea about hell correct. And then Maybe there's a second chance after death, or, or maybe there's a universalism where everybody, God's just going to say, ah, what, what the heck, everybody's good to go. Or that the wicked are simply annihilated, they simply cease to exist after they die. And, and the idea is, and I get it, I've said many times when we speak about hell, if we speak about hell to unbelievers, we better have tears in our eyes because we were as lost as they were, are at one time. But it, does, it is not loving to unbelievers to simply say, you know what, there's, not, there's no judgment coming. And lastly, the reliability of scriptures, and of course all of this that we've just discussed depends on this. Is this God's word or is it not? And so I wonder 20 years from now, is Keystone still proclaiming a grace-encapsulated gospel? Are, are we still promoting a gospel that cannot be bought by our own human efforts? Are we still exporting a biblical gospel to the ends of the earth? And to a large degree, the answer to those questions will be, term, be determined by you and I and our kids and our grandkids. What we have done with the grace of of God, that God has given us operative in the church that we're blessed to be part of. Father, preserve this church. May you make our leaders strong in the years to come, standing confidently, alone if necessarily, necessary, on the word of God. May we all fix our eyes on Jesus and may we never tremble at the ways of the world, or the words of the world. May we only tremble at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.